able to remain standing. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Verse 42 reads, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, work and greatness, work and greatness. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are the great and high and lifted up God. The one, as we just sung, who is so exalted and glorious and beautiful, and yet you come down in the depths with us, and you make us into your image, the image of Christ. And so, God, we pray today that you would do just that, that you would show up in this place and by your Holy Spirit, change us, transform our hearts, our minds, our whole lives, that we might love you more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, William Shakespeare once said, Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. I would add one more, if you can add words to Shakespeare. Cassius Clay, later known as Muhammad Ali, simply claimed it. If you know his story, Cassius Clay uh, grew up uh, as what you would call a very charismatic person, full of personality, full of fire, full of confidence. And so when he becomes an up-and-coming up and rising star in boxing, he was exactly that. He was a 22-year-old who thought he could take on the world, and so he challenged uh, the reigning champion, heavyweight champion at the time, Sonny Liston. And as it got closer to the fight, this, this epic fight that, that was blown up in the media and, and, and became huge, uh, he, he started talking trash, and, he, and I'm not going to get into all that, but he, he started saying he's going to win. And so as they're going back and forth, it gets closer to the fight, and the fight actually starts, and, um, and immediately Cassius Clay is in the, in the defensive position. Sonny Liston comes out hard and he begins to punch, landing punches left and right. He's, he's taken him down as was expected because Clay was actually a severe underdog, being not the champion. And so uh, Sonny Liston is, is going in hard, he, he's fighting hard, but then it starts to turn as Cassius Clay doesn't back down, but he continues to push forward and the fight turns and now he's in the lead. And by the sixth round, he is landing punches left and right, and Sonny Liston is the one in the defensive position, where by the seventh round, sure enough, Sonny Liston says, I've had enough. He spits out his mouthpiece, and he says, that's it. That's it. I can't take any more. Cassius Clay would be the new world champion. And afterwards, for the first time of many times in his life, he said these famous words, I am the greatest. I shook up the world. I'm the greatest thing that's ever lived. I don't have a mark on my face, and I upset Sonny Liston, and I just turned 22 years old. 
I must be the greatest. And he was the greatest in boxing. Now, what does, what does greatness actually mean? What does it mean to be the greatest? What does it mean to have that title? Whether it's thrust upon you, whether you earn it, whether you claim it before you even have it, what does it actually mean to be the greatest? Because our world has a definition of greatness, and it's often something similar to Muhammad Ali's own definition. Here's what it is. Greatness is equated with the strongest, You are the greatest when you are the strongest, or you are the prettiest, or you are the smartest, or you are the coolest, or you are the fastest, or you are the tallest, or whatever it is, but greatness is defined like this. It's when you are above someone else or something else. That's what it means in our world to be the greatest, that you are above and someone or somebody else is below you. And so in our culture... This is what it means to seek greatness. The the way we seek greatness is you have to get closer to the top, right? The goal of greatness is I somehow have to get higher. I somehow have to get better. I have to improve. I have to increase. I have to perform. I have to somehow get higher in the ranks if I want to be the greatest. Now, most of us are not as blunt or maybe we're just not as confident as Muhammad Ali. But we have that same vision. We have that same vision for our life that we believe what it means to be great, whether we have it or someone else has it, is that it is the one who's above. But God has his own definition of greatness, and it's completely unlike that. So today we're continuing our series that we called Faith Goes to Work, and we've been looking, like I said, at what it looks like to have our faith come into our workplace where often those things are separated. What we do on Sunday doesn't affect Monday through Saturday. And so we're trying to look at what does it look like for us to actually have these two things integrated in our life. And so last week we looked at uh, how to have a rhythm of both work and rest. That before you get too far along in, in pursuing your work, you have to have a rhythm of work and rest that can manage your life and you can be healthy through what we talked about as the Sabbath, right? Well, this week, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the motive of our work, the motive of our work. And what I want to look at today is what does it actually mean to be great in our work? Because you're going to hear conflicted messages. If you've been working for more than 10 minutes in the workplace, you know there, there are different messages out there about what it means to be great in your work. And so today I want to look at how does Jesus define that. And in this passage, there's actually three definitions of greatness or three perspectives on greatness that will help us in our work. And so first, we're going to look at moving upward, moving upward. If you're taking notes today, that's the first point, moving upward. Look at verse 42 with me, 42. It says this, And Jesus called them, speaking of his disciples, to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now pause there for a second. Jesus pulls his disciples aside for a moment to have a private conversation with them. Now imagine this for a moment. Jesus is with his disciples, and he says, or he notices something, that what they are defining as greatness is not what he says is greatness. 
And so Jesus wants to clearly have a conversation with them to say, this is what it actually is. And so he decides to, to make his definition. He's going to give an example from their culture. And so he pulls out the Gentiles. Now, if you never uh, read the Bible or you're not familiar with the Bible, the Gentiles are all the people who are not Jewish. So it, it, the word literally means the nations. So he says, I want to compare with you what the nations say about greatness and what God's word says about greatness. You hear that? And so he's saying, I, I want you to see that the way they do leadership, the way they do influence is different. Now, he says, the rulers of the Gentiles... Now, what's he talking about? The rulers were positions of power and influence. These, these were the people who had political power, business power, religious power, whatever it is. They were the people who were in places of power and influence. And he says, I want you to watch how they use their power. How do they use their influence? Look at what he says. He says, they lord it over them. The word there in Greek literally means this. It says, to put into subjection and to have mastery over someone else. To put into subjection and to have mastery over someone else. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, in, in Genesis chapter 1, we talked about uh, what, what's called the cultural mandate. And if you remember, the cultural mandate in Genesis chapter 1 is God telling all of humanity, I want you to go make the world flourish. I want you to go use your work to make the world flourish. And, and he uses this word of having dominion. It means to, to take control and to use it for good, right? So what's the difference right here between what God said in Genesis chapter 1 and what Jesus says right here in Mark chapter 10? What's the difference between what God calls us to do and what Jesus warns us against? Here it is. You ready? They have different goals. They have different goals. God, in chapter 1 of Genesis, he's saying this. He's saying, I want you to cultivate all of creation for the good of creation, for the good of the world. And what Jesus is saying is, this, this lording and over them has a different motive. It has a different goal. He's saying they are not using their, their influence to, to, uh, to, to make others flourish. They're using their influence to make themselves flourish. You see the difference? So in other words, he's saying both have influence, but one is using it for others and the other one is using it for themselves. They are using their work for selfish gain at the expense of others. Listen, this is where work goes wrong. Work gets polluted by this self-promotion, self-promotion. Now, pause there for a moment. Jesus didn't give this lesson just kind of out of the blue. Jesus didn't just think up a great idea and say, uh, you know what, we need to have a conversation. Actually, this is a response to two of the other disciples who weren't there for this conversation. Two of the other disciples right before this come to Jesus. It's James and John, and they have this bold request. They go to Jesus, and they say this, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we're about to ask you. Could you imagine the boldness of that? In one way, I just admire them, that they're so uh, comfortable with Jesus that they just say, you know what, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you think? And Jesus, because he's so patient and so kind with us in our foolishness, he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, what, you know, that's, that's dumb. Why would I ever do what you say? Jesus plays along and he says, okay, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, think about that. What, what if Jesus asked you that question? What do you want me to do for you? 
it's almost like Jesus is sliding across the table a blank check and says, you write the amount. And you know what James and John say? They say, okay, here's what we want. We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand. In other words, we want the positions of power and influence. We, we want to be up near the top. We realize that you're the Messiah, you're the one on the throne, but we at least want to be at your right hand and your left hand. Because Jesus, we realize that, that this Messiah thing is, is taking off, there's crowds following you, and, and we want to get in early. Right? They want to be early adopters. And Jesus says to them, you, know, you have no idea what you're asking. You have no idea what it, what it will be like to be in those positions. But then what happens in the story is the other disciples, the other ten, they overhear this conversation. They overhear James and John asking for those positions. And what do they say? In verse 41, it says, they began to be indignant at James and John. That's a fancy word for they are angry. They are furious. Now, why in the world would they be so angry? Because they didn't think of it first. <laughs> they, they beat them to it, right? This is a jealous anger because they, they are thinking, wow, if James and John get to the right and the left, what does that mean about us? We're going to be at the bottom. And so Jesus is exposing their vision of greatness. Let me ask you for a second. What, what is your vision of greatness? What's your vision of greatness? For many of us in, in our achievement culture, greatness means exactly what we might expect, that it means to be at the top. And, and, and just like the disciples, you know, if we can't be at the top, top, maybe we can at least be at the right hand and the left. Maybe we can at least have the ear of the person who's in control and who has power and who has influence. We at least want to be in the room to, to have some kind of influence. We, we want to be as close as we can to the top. And so we want to be the top performers. We want to be the top salespeople. We want to be the top earners. We want to be the top in status and wealth and influence and followers and all these different things. That is our culture. Right? We, we want to be as close as possible to gain as much power and influence. Just, just look at our, our political spectrum here. Right? A lot of politics today is how close can I get to power? How close can I get to influence? So at this point, some of you are like, wait a minute, Pastor, are you saying that power and influence are always evil? Does that mean that I can't ever aspire to be in a position of leadership? Does that mean I can't ever aspire to move up at my job? No, that's not what I'm saying. Listen to me carefully. Influence itself isn't evil. It's the idolatry of influence that makes it evil. It's the idolatry of influence. Notice the difference between Genesis chapter 1 and Mark chapter 10. God is saying, I want, to use, I want your influence to be used to make everyone else flourish. Verse what Jesus is saying is the Gentile rulers were using their influence to flourish themselves. Right? It's not the influence. It's, it's the idolatry of that influence. And listen, we can identify this idolatry in our own hearts from both the top and the bottom or any place in between. See, just like the ten disciples who get angry, there, there's this feeling of being indignant towards someone else that might be a signal that this is an idol in your life. Right? We can tell, listen, 
you can tell that influence is an idol in your life if you're jealous of all those that have it. And it can be real subtle. It can be real subtle. It can come out in things in your workplace like this where all of a sudden you're gossiping about the people who are in leadership at your job, right? You're always talking bad about them. You're always poking little jabs at things. And, and uh, you know, you're saying things like, man, if I was in charge, this is what I would do if I was in charge. If I was in charge, I would change this and I would change this and I would change this. Just wait till you're in charge of something. It's terrible. You, you don't know what you're asking for. Listen, you start saying things like, you know what, that they, they, uh, you know, they said this and they did that and you're spreading rumors and, and all of a sudden you, you start to look at it and you realize your workplace is just the place where you are trying to promote yourself. You're trying to increase your status, you're trying to increase your income, you're trying to increase your platform, whatever it is, but at the end of the day, you're, you're jealous and angry about the people who have influence because your work has become about your own upward movement. But it also happens to those who are at the top. And it's a little bit different signal. It's most likely not you're indignant, but you're indifferent. You're indifferent. What do I mean by that? When, when you're the person at the top or closer to the top, and now you've reached this place of status, and, and you've worked really hard. I mean, darn it, you've, you've, you've worked your butt off for years to get to the place you're at, and now everybody else below you, you, you stop listening. You don't want to listen to their cares. You don't want to listen to their concerns. You're disconnected from what's really going on. You're completely indifferent because you've reached that place of influence, and now you don't need them anymore. Right? Your, your work is no longer about anyone else. It's about you, and you've arrived. You see how it can go bad in both places? It can go bad whether you're at the bottom, whether you're at the top, whether you're in the middle. It, it can be this idolatry of influence where now my work has become about myself. You can be at the top, you can be at the bottom, but it's the same vision of greatness. It's the same vision. Greatness is about being above. But is that the way Jesus defines it? It's not. How is greatness designed to work? Let's look at the next portion here, uh, this next section, and we're going to call it moving downward. Moving downward. Look at verse 43. Jesus goes on to say this to the disciples. He says, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, Jesus makes this clear distinction between, again, what the world is saying and what he is saying, right? He's saying the kingdom of God has a different structure than the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of business, the kingdoms of, of, of ministry, the kingdoms of, of education, government, politics, whatever, right? He's saying the, these two places have different structures. And I love how the New American Standard captures the literal a little more clearly here, the New American Standard says, but it is not this way among you. Did you catch the difference? In the ESV, it says, it shall not be this way, but he's saying, or in the NASB, it says, it is not this way, which is a little, a little bit nuanced, but it's a little more accurate. It, what Jesus is saying is, not that this is an ideal to work towards, but this is already how it is. 
This is how the kingdom is. This is how the kingdom works. This is how the kingdom functions. It, it is not about you moving up. It's about you moving downward. Now the question is, will you live it out? What's that reality of greatness? Listen, Jesus uses two uh, related metaphors, right? He says, if you want to be great, here it is. You need to be a servant. Now the word servant there is the word in Greek, diakonos. It gives us our word deacon, right? But in their culture, what it, it was a common word that literally meant table server, right? It was the person, you know, Sunday afternoon after church, someone who serves your table at the restaurant. That is what he's saying. He's saying this, if you want to be great, go serve tables. Go serve tables. That, that is what greatness is. But then he takes it up a little bit higher. He escalates the metaphor. He says, if you don't just want to be great, you want to be first, then you got to go even lower. You got to go down below the servant, below the table servant. You got to get down to the bottom where the slaves are. He says, you have to be a slave of all. Now, in their culture, the slave was, was the lowest on the social uh, totem pole, right? It, it was below the servant. It, it was the lowest of low, the least and last. I mean, in their culture, they would have thought Jesus must have been ridiculous to think that the person at the bottom of their social status would now be at the top of the kingdom of God. But that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus flips the entire organizational chart on its head, and he says the people at the top of the kingdom are the slaves. I mean, what, what is he saying? This is what he's saying. Jesus is saying the way you view greatness is the opposite of the way God views greatness. This is a countercultural way in which the kingdom works, and it's how your work will flourish in this world. In other words, greatness isn't lording it over. It's serving under. It's serving under. And that's how our work flourishes. Work flourishes through this kind of self-forgetfulness. Uh, Tim Keller wrote this really small book uh, called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's, it's like 40 pages. I don't know. It's really small, thin, tiny book. Uh, highly recommend it. it. It's more like a sermon in a book form, I think. Uh, but it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And he says this about humility. He says, if we were able to meet a truly humble person... We would never come away thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. You hear that? It's not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself because humility is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. Listen, that is what Jesus is describing. He's saying that's how your work in the kingdom flourishes. That's how your work in the world flourishes. And listen, what he's not, what he's not talking about is false humility. So understand me real quickly. It's not false humility because false humility doesn't help anybody. 
doesn't help anybody flourish, right? False humility is this idea that I'm going to constantly be beating myself up so that other people think I'm good, right? In other words, instead of being obsessed with the top, now you're obsessed with the bottom. You want to make sure everybody knows how humble you are and how self-sacrificing you are and how self-deprecating you are. You want to make sure everyone knows you have a low view of yourself so that maybe they'll build you up. You know, maybe they'll come by and give you a compliment. Maybe they'll make you feel good. Maybe they'll realize how much you've given and how much you've sacrificed because it's not really humility because, listen, it's all about you still. You see the difference? That's not really humility. Humility is not beating yourself up and making yourself look bad. Humility is thinking about yourself less. It's saying, my life is going to be about others. It's going to be about others. Right? And so how does that true self-forgetting humility make our work flourish? It's because it's not about me now. It's about the people I am working with and for. Listen. Imagine if you showed up to your workplace and you showed up to the place with this expectation, I am here to make the people at this place great. In other words, you don't show up to your workplace thinking, I am here so that they can make me great. You know, how can they advance my career? How can they advance my bank account? How can they advance my desires and goals and purposes? But how can I show up to make them great? And imagine if the people that you worked with and the people you worked for, they turned around and they said, you know what, I'm showing up to make sure you become great. And you, as the person at the bottom or in the middle or wherever you are in the org chart, you are trying to make the people at the top great and the people at the top are trying to make you great. That is what Jesus is describing. He's describing this two-way humility where you're saying, I want to see the flourishing of the people who are in my life that I'm working with. I want to see the people who I'm working for, the people that we're serving, the people that we're, we're investing in. I want to see them flourish. How would that radically change your workplace? I mean, think about that. That, that. that is unheard of, that people would show up with that kind of attitude. But listen, it frees you up from so much. It frees you up from feeling like I, I have to... I have to love with strings attached. I, I can't listen to people unless they're going to give me something, right? It frees you up to actually listen. Frees you up to not have to defend yourself. Frees you up to take risks and fail because my identity isn't attached to my work anymore. It frees you up to show up to love people without conditions. I mean, what if you showed up for their success? Think about that. That kind of serving takes a lot of security. It takes a lot of security, which is why all of us struggle with it. It takes a lot of deep security. And so where do you get that? How do you have that kind of security to love in that way? This is our last point. It takes moving toward. It's the one who moved towards us. This is the third point, moving toward. Look at verse 45. Jesus ends with these words. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love this because Jesus drops this subtle, humble comment. He says, for even the Son of Man, right? It, it's actually Jesus' favorite title for himself. All throughout Mark, he's calling himself the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Other people call him the Son of God, and he will call himself that. But often he calls himself the Son of Man. And it's not because he isn't the Son of God. 
I mean, Jesus is fully God and fully man, but, but he wants you to remember that this high and lifted up, this exalted God in the heavens who's existed from all eternity is also the one who came down to earth in the form of human flesh to take on our life. He's saying, I am the son of man. And listen, why did he have to come? He didn't come so that he could be served, even though he had every right. Right? Jesus could have showed up on this earth as God in human form and said, I want everyone to bow down to me because I'm God. But he didn't come for that. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. I love that Jesus says it this way. He says, for even the Son of Man, to point out this, even Jesus isn't an exception. There is no exception in the kingdom. This is how the kingdom works. The kingdom is full of people who have to serve. This is the way that the kingdom functions. It is full of people who serve. Even the son of man himself, the person at the very top, becomes the person at the very bottom because that's how the kingdom functions. And so his redemptive work means he had to offer his life as a ransom, a ransom. In the language of their culture and day, uh, the, the ransom was, was a debt that was paid for someone else. And so the debt was paid for people who were in bondage or, or, or in prison. Uh, it was usually prisoners of war, or it would be people who were uh, born into slavery. It, it was people who needed to pay a debt that they couldn't pay. And so someone would come along and pay the ransom. But notice what Jesus says. He says uh, it, it would be a ransom for. Notice the preposition. Not, not a ransom to. He's not going to use some other resources that he has to pay the ransom that we had to pay. He says it's going to be a ransom for. It's, it's this word that can mean uh, instead of or in place of, right? It means that I'm going to have to be your substitute. The Son of Man is going to have to take your place to pay your ransom. For him to set us free from our bondage to sin and misery, for him to set us free from our own selfishness and greed and anger and, 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 and disruptive rebellion, he had to take the risk to take our place. That's how love works. Love moves toward so that it could take our place. Now listen, most kingdoms do whatever it takes to protect their king. Take, for example, uh, the Allied invasion of Normandy uh, on D-Day in 1944. Uh, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, uh, as they were setting up this invasion, he wanted to be there on that day. He wanted to watch the invasion from a battleship on the deck and see it live. And so he told everybody, I'm going to go. I'm going to be there in the presence of this place to support the troops and to support the work. And so everybody else around him told him, that's a terrible idea. Why would you ever go? You could get killed in battle. And he said, no, no, I'm going to go. I am going to be there in person. And if you know Churchill, he was a pretty stubborn person. No one was going to change his mind and so uh, Dwight Eisenhower gets word of this in the U.S., and he says, I've got I've to convince him otherwise. And so he calls him and tries to talk him out of it, and he couldn't talk him out of it. So then he calls the king. He calls King George VI and says, you have to talk to Churchill to convince him not to do this. And so the king comes up with this brilliant idea. He calls Churchill, and he says, okay, so I've heard... No one can stop you from going. You're going to go. And since you believe it's your duty to support the people by being there in person, I believe now it's my duty to go with you. And so I'm going to stand on the ship with you. 
Now, Churchill was also pretty smart. He realized, okay, they've got me. I can't let the king of England stand on a battleship in the middle of a war. I won't go. And he backed out because he couldn't put the king in that kind of danger. But listen, the good news of the gospel is that King Jesus does the exact opposite. King Jesus goes into the danger. He goes into the risk, into the battle, and he says, I'm coming off of my high throne, and I'm coming down as the Son of Man to take on all that you deserve. I'm coming for you. In other words, anytime we love somebody, there has to be this exchange, right? Anybody you've ever loved in your life, if you've loved a friend or a coworker or a spouse or anybody else, you know there's an exchange. There's an exchange that happens that whatever's going on in their life is now going on in your life. Whatever was going on in your life is now going on in their life because the nature of love is there's an exchange. In other words, there's no safe love. There's only risky love. There's only costly love. There's only love that means I'm going to have to move down into the mess to love that person. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus moves down towards us with royal courage, he surrenders his body to be crucified. And so on the cross, he offers the greatest ransom, his life for the life of his people. And as the soldiers nailed him to the cross, he was being pierced for our transgressions. As they raised him up naked before the crowds, he was bearing our shame. As he was breathing his last breath, he was defeating our last enemy, death itself. Jesus the king was standing in the place of his people as our ransom, paying the debt that we owed, paying what we could never pay for, paying for us to be set free forever. See, the freedom that Jesus purchases on the cross is the freedom that gives us that security. See, on the cross, Jesus takes our place so that what we did in our sin, now God takes away and he puts on us the righteousness of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus. So when God looks at you in Christ, when you put your faith in Christ, he sees perfection. He sees beauty. He sees glorious greatness because that's who his son is. And so now you're secure in that. As a believer, you have everything that Jesus had. It becomes yours because you are in him. And so you have nothing left to prove. You have nothing left to gain. But also you have nothing else to lose. It's already yours. You have all the greatness in the gospel. Everything you could ever imagine. You are there. You're there. And so if you've got it already, you, you can take the risk of love. You can say, I'm secure in the gospel. I'm secure in Jesus. It doesn't matter if I lose their approval. It doesn't matter if, if they take advantage of me occasionally. It doesn't matter if I, I lose everything I have to love them. It doesn't matter because I'm secure in the gospel. I'm secure enough to love. That's what greatness looks like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, As Isaiah saw you high and lifted up with the train of your robe that filled the temple, he cried out, holy, holy, holy. You are worthy beyond words. The angels have been singing from all eternity how beautiful you are, how wonderful, how glorious, and yet 
you came down, stooped down to us to save us, the ones who were at the bottom, the ones who had nothing of merit or deserving, and yet you came for us because you loved us, because you don't lord it over us. Instead, you use your power, your influence to love, to make your enemies flourish, to make the people who've rebelled against you and spit in your face and hit you with whips and put a crown of thorns on you. That's how you love. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us with that kind of love, that the Spirit of Jesus who lives in us would move upon us to be people who serve. We would be the slave of all. We would be joyful and content wherever you place us. And if you put us at the top, if you put us in a place of great influence and great power, God, may we use it in such a way that we bring glory to the King, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet.